As we jump into this story, verse 1 kind of is, is just a transition verse for us. It tells us that Samuel, the one that you know, had kind of like shepherded Israel before the kings were established, he passed away. All Israel mourned, and his death is going to factor in later on in the book, but not today. Um, all Israel mourned him. David, for some reason, then left the nation of Israel, went down to Paran. And then sometime later, we come to verse 2 where we have this uh, situation begin to unfold with this man named Nabal. And we, we find out in verse 2 that, there, that Nabal was a su- successful businessman. He, it says that he was very rich. It says that he had, you know what, 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And, and then it tells us that, that, uh, and that he was shearing his sheep. So not only was he rich, but it, it's shearing time, so he's about to get richer. Right? He's, he's bringing in the harvest from his thousands of sheep that were there. It seems like he's got everything going for him. He's wealthy. He has a successful business. He's getting, he's, he's, he, we're going to find out it's going to be a bumper crop of wool, you know, in his farm. And then we also find out that, that he's got like, he's got like this perfect wife, right? She's beautiful. She's intelligent. Like on kind of like every human measurement, like Nabal seems to be doing well. Except 
there's some hints in there that tells us that maybe that's not really the case. First of all, if you were a Hebrew reader listening to this and, and you would stumble across his name Nabal, you'd be like, what? Because have you ever met somebody whose parents, you were thinking to yourself, like, what were this kid's parents thinking when they named him? You ever... That's, that's exactly what the Hebrew writer would have been thinking, because Nabal in, in Hebrew means fool. <laughs> like, hey, fool, right? Like, I don't know if that was his nickname, but that's what everybody called him, was fool. And, uh, and so you're probably like, you know, your reader's going to be like, oh, that's weird. And then you find out that maybe his parents did know what they were doing when they named him, because we find out in verse 3 that what this man was everything this man was everything that his wife wasn't his wife was beautiful and intelligent and he was harsh and he was evil in his dealings like if you if you have the ESV it says he was badly behaved which i think is i think is a weak weak translation of the word because it's it's not like he just sit there and throw temper tantrums when he didn't get his ice cream um <laughs> that's what i think of when i hear badly behaved right I mean, this guy is evil in his dealings. Like, he, he's, he treats his wife poorly. He treats his family poorly. He treats his servants poorly. He's, he's probably corrupt in his business. Like, every, on the surface, he looks like everything is going well until you actually get to know the guy, and he's just a fool. He is, he is harsh and evil. So what we find out is that David hears that, that, you know, that shearing time, David used to be a shepherd himself, um, he sends, you know, and it's uh, the shearing time, like when they were bringing in the harvest, because it was a time of festivity. As everybody's working, they would work and they would celebrate together. And so David sends, like, he's, you know, he's got 600 men with him, but he sends a delegation of men to Nabal and to ask them for some food so that he can celebrate with his men too. And, and what he says is important for us. First of all, the men greet Nabal in David's name. So this is, this is not about, like, just about, like, the men coming to Nabal. This is about David himself. Because when he greets them, in, like, these men are representing David. That's in verse, um, verse 5. And then he says this in verse 6. He, he turns and he blesses Nabal's house. Look what he says. He says, have a long life. He goes on. He says, and... And may peace be upon you, and peace be upon your house, and peace be to all that you have. That word peace in the Hebrew is that word shalom, which means like wholeness and health and completeness and, and goodness. He's like, man, Nabal, I want, I want there to be like blessing on you and blessing on, I have a long life of blessing and blessing on everyone that lives in your house and blessing upon everything you have. It's this really gracious, like, wish upon Nabal. And what we find out is that David wasn't just full of words. Like, talk is cheap. If he, if then he goes on in verse, um, verse 7. He says, And now I have heard that you have shears and that your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. So what David's basically saying, I think it's funny, like, oh, we haven't insulted them. Like, oh, okay. I don't know. Does that ring funny to anybody else? But... What David is saying is like, man, we've been respectful to all of your workers. And when he says, and they haven't missed anything, he's not talking about, and we'll see this later on, he's not talking about stealing, like we haven't stolen from them. What he's saying is that while we were with them, like not a single sheep was lost. In fact, if you look down in verse, um, sorry, this is in my notes, but I'm not following my notes. Um, 
Verse 16. This is the shepherds talking to Abigail. We'll see this later on. They were, they were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the time we were with them tending sheep. Um, oh, verse 15. As long as we went about with them while we were in the fields, they were a wall to us. What, what the shepherds were saying is like David and his men were respectful of them and they protected Nabal's flocks with the shepherds. So during that entire time, not one sheep or goat was stolen. Not one sheep or goat was eaten by a wolf. Not one sheep or goat was um, like wandered off. Like, I don't know what the like expected loss of sheep or goats in that day was, but for whatever reason, like this is going to be the best like harvest gathering of, of wool that Nabal had because of David's men. hundred percent of the sheep made it in, right? Not one was lost. And he's, he says like, go ask your young men if that's the case. And, and so, and, and, and since, so you've got this request where David blesses him in word. He blessed him in deed. And he says, so can we just celebrate along with you? You know, everything in, everything in the ancient world would have, like, compelled Nabal to say yes. David was from the same tribe as he was. They had this family loyalty. Middle Eastern hospitality would have said, would have said like, yeah, of course you can join with us. And, and he's got so much wealth, it wouldn't even be a sacrifice for him. And then he's got the obligation simply because David and his men like blessed him with his deed. And so part of like his wealth that he's gathering in actually came from them. And they're just asking for some food to celebrate with. Everything would have compelled Nabal to say yes. David says, check with your men. Like, you know, you you haven't missed anything, but Nabal doesn't need to do that. Because his mind was made up the moment he heard these guys were from David. Because look what he says next. He turns around and insults David in verse, verse 9. It says, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. So they said this. They said it in David's name. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? Like his response was what? Like David? Really? David is nothing more than just a runaway servant rebelling against his master, and everybody following him is a bunch of rebels too. I am not going to give my food and my sheep and my wine or whatever else he lists there to, to him. Man, you see Nabal's greed in all of those mys, right? You see his disdain for David. Who is David and who is this son of Jesse? That's the same language that Saul used. We're meant to connect Nabal and Saul here in their response. They both have this disdain for David. Nabal is like consumed by his wealth, and he turns David's men away empty-handed. Verse 12, so David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. And David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. Three times it says, what? Girded on your sword. Like the author wants us to remember, like realize, oh, now we've got 400 insulted and angry men, like moving out towards Nabal's house. 
We don't really know David's, like, intentions, right? Doesn't look good, though, right? <laughs> it looks like, it looks like uh, he's going to get his, like, party one way or the other. They take 400 men, arm them to the teeth, and they set off towards Nabal's house. Verse 14, our scene shifts back to um, Nabal's house. It says this, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. The word scorn there means to, like, scream at them and to rail at them. So, like, the disdain that, that Nabal showed was even more than, than I gave it. It says, Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything, as long as we went about with them while they were in, our, in the fields. They were a wall to us by night and by day, all the time we were with them, tending sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So the servant... One of the young men, probably one of the shepherds, is like, oh, bummer. Probably stronger than that, but this is church. So um, <laughs> this is going to be bad. And so he turns to the one person that he, has the, that he respects, probably, that has some authority. He turns to Abigail, Nabal's wife, and says, man, know and consider, like, think this through, Abigail, what you should do, because I'm pretty sure something bad's coming our way. Look what happens, verse 18. Oh, no, before we go there. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. You know, Nabal was not just a fool. He was not just harsh. He was not just uh, evil in his dealings. But he was like without hope because he was such a fool that he wouldn't listen to anyone. And so there was no way for him to be corrected. And the, the servant knew that, so he's just like, I'm just I'm going to bypass Nabal, go right to Abigail. Abigail will know what to do. I, think, I feel like I just need to step out here for a second, step out of our text for a second, and address us men. Because the, the reality is, is like if the, Nabal is probably not unlike, or what exists in, in, our, in our hearts, or even in David's heart there, is not unlike what we struggle with as men. We don't like to listen to other people. Sometimes we can be harsh, right? Sometimes we can be evil in our dealings. And the reality is, is that, is that, you know, in my 20 years of ministry, I've seen a lot of, like, people, men, like, like Nabal, play the fool to, like, great harm to their family and to their kids and to everybody that they come in contact with. You know, and the, this idea of, like, being isolated, I think there's a lot of ways we end up doing that. For Like, here, he, it's really explicit. He was so stupid that he wouldn't listen to anyone. Like, if, if you're a guy here, there's a lot of ways you can do that. Maybe it's just through your arrogance, like Nabal, where, I, you know, I know it all, right? I lift myself up. There's this, there's this kind of spirit, even in the church today, where guys, like, exalt themselves as, like, the king of their house, and they exalt themselves over all other authority, and they don't listen to anybody, and there's no church good enough for them, and they, you know, I don't know if anybody have come into contact with people like that. There's other guys that just are, like, do this, but through isolation. Like, I, I'm just not going to have any significant relationships so that nobody can really speak into my life. In fact, Proverbs talks about that. Like Proverbs says this in Proverbs, whatever it is on my notes. Let me see. Let me get there. 
There it is, Proverbs 18. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Like, guys, we can't be them, right? We can't be those men that isolate ourselves to seek our own desire, who don't, who break out against sound judgment, who just want to give our opinions. We need to be guys that listen and that have people in our lives that can speak to us. Because one of the other problems is, is that, like, if, if you remember last week, both David and Saul had people counseling them on what to do. Do you guys, if you were here last week, David's men told him, David, go kill Saul. This is your opportunity. God gave you this opportunity. And David rejected the counsel of his men. Saul, on the other hand, was being told by his men, like, David's out to get you. David's out to get you. David's out to get you. You should kill him first. And Saul listened to the voice of his men when he shouldn't have. So here's the thing. Some of you guys do have a lot of relationships around you. But not all relationships are, are valuable. You know, the, the reason why David knew they shouldn't listen to the voice of his men is because that counsel was coming to him in a way that was not consistent with the scriptures. It's coming to, from, to, from people who weren't acting inconsistent consistent with the scriptures. Saul's message, Saul listened to his men even though it was, it was against like all common sense and the scriptures. There's another Proverbs that speak about this. It's like um, Proverbs, yeah, 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And if you surround yourself by people who lack wisdom or who are operating in disobedience to the Lord and to his word, like don't expect like, things to go well for you. You will suffer harm. You know, it's amazing to me how, like, much, like, attention we will give, like, those voices, like the voice of a gossip or the voice of somebody that's just seeking to tear people down or the voice of, like, and we just love to listen to that stuff. And the very, the very nature of the council is coming in a way that's, that's uh, disobedient to the Lord, and we should be smart enough not to listen to that. We need to make sure that the counsel that we get are, is coming from people that are wise and that follow the Lord. Does that make sense, men? Let's move on. Verse 18. Now what we see is we see Abigail like intercede here. And she acts decisively and wisely. Look what happens. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisin and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And it came about as she was riding her donkey. Now listen to this. And it came about that as she was riding her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain, that behold, David and his men were coming down towards her. So she met them. This is like an amazing like, passage right here. So what Abigail does is she hears this doom coming upon her household, and she takes action. She takes initiative. She takes action. You can tell that she commands the respect of her household because she's like, she hurried, like, get a bunch of stuff together, right? hundred, whatever, fig, fig cakes, right? Apparently, if you've got mad people coming after you, fig cakes will do the trick, so... She commands their respect. She commands their action. She takes decisive measures. She loads them up on donkeys. They're heading towards where they suspect David and his men will be. 
And it's interesting. It says, and when they were coming down by the hidden part of the mountain. The point being there is that, and so you've got, like, imagine the scene. You've got all the servants out front, in front of Abigail. And you have Abigail at the back of the, of the train of, like, food that's going. They, they move into this mountain where nobody can see them. They're concealed. There's no cell coverage, right? They're, they're isolated and alone. And if somebody ambushed them, they would be defenseless and nobody wouldn't even know to come help them. And behold, 400 men, like, converge upon them. You're supposed to feel the tension in this. If you don't feel the tension yet, we're finally told what David's intentions were in verses 20 and 20, or 21 and 22. Now David said, surely in vain, David had said, right? This is what's motivating. Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David and more also. If by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. So we're finally told David's intention right at this moment that they're ambushing these young men that are bringing this food to David. And his intention is to murder every male in Nabal's house because of the insult that he received. This looks like a bad scene. Right? And this is why it's so amazing. So Abigail met them. Like she spurs her donkey. She rides through her men. And as these men are converging upon him, she moves out in front of them and completely upsets the equilibrium of what's going on. Let me just pause there and speak to you ladies for a second. You know, if, if you're here this morning, and, and, and I know there's different traditions, and I found out this week that somebody, like, somebody, like a, a Bible teacher, teaches that Abigail was completely in the wrong in this whole text, which is like lunacy. If, if you're here and you think that the Bible teaches that you as women should be like um, these weak and cowardly and and trembling women who are anxious about everything and just who need, who need, like, your husband to fix everything for you. Like, you're not reading the Bible correctly. Because when 400 angry men start converging upon Abigail, and, and it's interesting in the text. Does anybody have the King James? Any King James people here? You have a King James? You wanna, can you read verse 22 for me? It doesn't say persist. Pisseth against the wall. <laughs> if you are wondering if the word piss is appropriate, it is. That's why they put pisseth on it in the King James. When you put the TH on the stuff, it makes it more holy. And you're like, that's kind of vulgar. Is it okay for Steve to be saying pisseth on Sunday morning? That's the whole point of the text. It's this expression. Like our translations try to like soften it a little bit. It, it literally says, if you want to just be clinical about it, those who urinate against the wall. It was this, it was this like crude, coarse, like demeaning sort of like comment upon the, upon the men in Nabal's house who had just said that, now this is interesting, David and his men were a wall around them. And David says, these ones that pee on the wall. Like, 
What, what the text is trying to convey to us is David is angry. And he's like losing it. And he's got his 400 men and he is going to go wipe out Nabal's house. And Abigail, a woman alone, rides out and meets them. Man, ladies, like God calls, like God does not call you to be these weak people. But we're going to see in this story that Abigail took action and she stepped up to intercede for her household and protect those that were in her care and under her love. And Proverbs 31 speaks about the ideal wife. And and look what it says. Strength and dignity are her clothing. Like not weakness and trembling and frailty, strength and dignity. That's what Abigail was doing here. She was riding out with strength and dignity. I'm not sure at that very moment she was laughing at the time to come. But what that's speaking of is that she has this confidence that comes for her relationship with the Lord, that that she has strength and dignity, and she can, like, face what comes before her with confidence. And maybe, maybe we'd be men who listen. Maybe we'd be women with strength and dignity. She rode out and met them. Look what happens. You know, upon seeing David, verse 23, when Abigail saw David, this is the second time she hurried, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And this, look, look, her next. Her next words are amazing. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. Wow. So not only does she go and goes out and rides in to, to confront this armed horde of men, she falls on her face and she takes full responsibility for their anger and wants the blame and their wrath to fall upon her. She, like, steps up and offers herself in place of her, like, household. This is a woman of courage and strength and dignity. And then the next words out of her mouth are critical. Like, her life hangs in the balance of the speech she's about to give. But I'm sure, like, all the men are just, like, not sure what to do at this point. Because they're expecting to, like, have an armed confrontation with all the men of Nabal's house. And now they meet this woman who takes all of the who takes all of the like, guilt upon herself. It goes on. Listen to what she says. She makes several requests of David. Verse 24, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Her first request is, please listen to me. And then she doesn't wait for him to give permission. She just keeps talking, right? <laughs> Probably not a bad idea when uh, you're in that situation. What was that? <laughs> sometimes it's good to keep your mouth shut, but sometimes it's good just to keep talking. Like, and then what she says next is just harsh but true. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. And so she knows, like, who her husband is, right? And she says, you know what, David? Don't burn too much energy 
focus on Nabal, because his name's a fool, he is a fool, and folly is with him. Like, such great counsel. Sometimes when people are just, are, are persisting in being the fool, like the book of Proverbs warns us again and again and again, like, it's better to meet a bear, a she-bear robbed of her cubs than a fool in his folly. It's one of the Proverbs. Like, sometimes the best thing you can do when a person's just going down a foolish path and won't listen to anybody is just not give them any, like, bandwidth. And that's what she's saying. Like, David, why are you burning bandwidth on my husband? He's, he's called fool for a good reason. He is a fool. And fo- everything he does is folly. Like, don't waste time on fools, David. And then she says, like, the real problem was that your men talked to the wrong person. Verse, uh, last half of verse 25. Nabal is his name and folly is with him, but I, your maidservant, did not see the young men whom my Lord sent. Like, you should have just come and talked to me, David. Like, I think that we want to be in this situation. Verse 26. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now, that let your, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. So she's actually making this request here, and it's actually like a half request and half prayer. She's saying, she's saying you know what, David? I heard what happened with you and Saul in that cave. I heard how you gave Saul Mercy and didn't shed his blood. This is all past tense, she's saying. Now, therefore, what? As the Lord lives, since the Lord has restrained you from doing that. What he's saying, what she's saying is like your mercy that you showed, like Saul in the cave, was so like um, such a miraculous, like otherworldly type of mercy that it had to have been the Lord protecting you in that moment. It's the Lord who restrained you in that cave from shedding blood and from incurring guilt upon yourself. I was at a conference yesterday, and one of the pastors, he's a, uh, he's a pastor in, in Portland, um, Virgil, Virgil Brown, right? Yeah. Virgil Brown from Redemption Church in Portland. He said this, We are good at revenge, but bad at forgiving. He was talking about all of the conflict among ethnic disunity in our country. But, like, it's, it's absolutely true here. Like, David's natural response to seek revenge is like what lives in every, inside every single one of us. We are good at revenge and bad at forgiving. And what Abigail is saying is, like, David, it was God who kept you from shedding that blood. And I'm going to pray to God that all of your enemies are going to be like Nabal, my foolish husband. So that you don't have, like, good enemies. You'll have foolish ones. That was her prayer. Verse 29. Then she reminds him of some things. And should anyone... Oh, no. Verse 28. Sorry. Oh, nope. Verse 27. Um, verse 27. And now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. So here's a simple request. Like, okay, God saved you from shedding blood. I'm going to pray for you that your enemies are going to be fools. Take this gift of food, verse 28. And then she asks for forgiveness. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Right? So now this is the critical moment. I need forgiveness because I've just asked that all the guilt of my husband be placed on me. 
please forgive me. And then the reason she gives is remarkable. She doesn't, she doesn't appeal to anything that we would normally think that she should appeal to. Look what she says. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Like, it's hard to see the connection between those two things, but what she's saying is that, David, please forgive me because there's more at stake here than simply your beef with my husband. God is going to make you an enduring house. This is the first time we get this, this concept in the scriptures speaking about the house of David, that one of David's like descendants, part of the dynasty of David, will reign forever. It's Abigail pleading for her life and forgiveness that points out David in God's like sovereign plan. There's more going on here than meets the eye. God is going to make someone from your house king forever. He's going to make you an enduring house. It's foreshadowing the prophecy that's going to come in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that says this. He's like the prophet Nathan's talking to David and says this, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. I want to remind us, like very beginning of the book, Hannah was the first one to call, like, to, 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 like, speak in the future of, like, a king who she called the anointed, the Messiah. She was the first one to, like, kind of predict the coming kingdom. She was the first one to, to associate that king with this idea of Messiah. That was Hannah in, in chapter 2, verse 10. Here you have Abigail unfolding that prophecy a little bit more that, that this one that's going to come is from David's house and he's going to reign forever and his kingdom will not have any end. What she's telling David is like, David, there's more at stake here than just your beef. God is going to do something amazing like for you and through you and how you handle these situations is a picture of like God's future coming kingdom that he's doing. Don't screw it up. She continues. And should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord, your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. She reminds him that God's doing something so much bigger than just you, David. Then she reminds him of God's promises. Like, because God's working through you, God is going to protect you, David. You don't need to worry about Saul. You don't need to worry about David. He's going to bind you together in the bundle of the living. That's probably a reference to a scroll that gets bound up. Probably a reference to, like, the book of life. Like, your name is written in God's book of life, David. He is going to protect you and see you through to the end. But your enemies... I know you know what this is like, David. They're going to be like rocks in the sling and just flung away out of God's presence. So you can't see him anymore. You're going to be protected by the Lord. Your enemies are going to be thrown farther away than you can even see. Verse 30, and it shall come about when the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint you ruler over Israel. Let me just pause there. He's like, she reminds him, you know what, David, not only is God doing something bigger in you than just your life, not only is he going to protect you, but he's going to fulfill every promise to you. And one day you will sit upon the throne, David. Like, 
God, like Saul can't like upset, uh, Saul can't upset God's promises to David. Nabal can't upset God's promises to David. David, act consistent with what you know to be true. Like, don't get led astray by your passions and your anger and being insulted. Verse 31. Like, when he puts you on your throne, she doesn't want this, that that this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord shall deal will with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. What she's saying is like, David, don't go down this path because if you go down this path, all that it will bring is sorrow and guilt and like this blood guiltiness upon you if you try to take your own revenge and you take this into your own hand and you forget the promises of God and you fail to be patient for him to accomplish what he wants to accomplish for you. Don't go down there, David. It's just sorrow. That's her speech in front of 400 angry men. She lays it all out there, boldly, confidently. And we see David's response, verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And he's like, man, Abigail, praise God for you. That's basically what he's saying. Because it wasn't just happenstance that came here. It wasn't just your wisdom that brought you here. It wasn't my rage that brought us here. It was God's sovereignty that brought you here to meet me and my men. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, and thank you, Abigail. Then he goes on. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. David's like, the the wrath that David was feeling that Abigail invited to fall upon her, like he turned into blessing. Blessed be you, blessed be your discernment, because God used you to restrain me from like terrible evil. And then in verse 34, he admits like what he would have done. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. He uses that same expression again. He's still angry, right? But he's like, you know, if it wasn't for you, Abigail... If you wouldn't have hurried, if you wouldn't have been so decisive, like it would have been a calamity. But God has restrained me from doing that through you. Verse 35, so David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Like Abigail and her courage and decisiveness saved her household from, from calamity, saved the household of David from calamity, and like gave us this picture of like the kingdom to come. Story's not over, though. Kind of begins to wrap up in verse, uh, verse 36. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. 
So first of all, we're told that Nabal's having this huge party and he's hammered and, and, uh, and he's having a feast like a king. Like the writer wants us to connect Nabal and Saul. Like Saul like disdained David and called him the son of Jesse. Saul was a fool and got the kingdom removed for him. Saul like was king and Nabal was acting like king. And Abigail was wise enough like, ah, I probably don't want to tell Nabal about this until he's sobered up a little bit, right? Verse 37, but it came about in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal that his wife told him these things and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, it happened that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. He was so enraged when Abigail told him what she did that sounds like he had a stroke. right and it says he became like stone he was just like comatose from this stroke because of like the news from Abigail and 10 days later the Lord dealt with Nabal it's exactly what Abigail said God would do that God would deal with the enemies of David he could trust he could trust God to to do what David needed to do David didn't need to avenge himself and he's Nabal's foreshadowing what God's going to do with Saul. David's not going to have to take upon himself, like, the, the, like seize the kingdom, kill Saul. He's going to have another opportunity to do that next week. Because God brings justice and judgment. There's more to the story. I'm going to let you just read that as you go on. Well, I'll read a part of it. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has pleaded his cause, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. See that? God kept me from doing this, but God also pled my cause. The Lord also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us uh, to you to take you our as his wife, and she arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail, here's the third time she, she's in a rush, quickly arose, right? Like, yes, and, and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Sadly, we find out in the next two verses that she's not David's only wife. Um. And, and that's significant because of all the things that God was doing through David, David wasn't the one that was promised who was going to fulfill the promises. But David, like, acquires Abigail as his wife after her husband dies. I think there's something, there's something in this whole story about, like, this idea of revenge that we need to, that we need to come to grips with. Like, we, you know, here in America, and, and I think in even the American church, there is this weak sauce, like, perception on forgiveness that goes something like this. Like, oh, God loves and forgives everyone, and so should we. Does anybody ever kind of hear that message in different, like, ways, shapes, or form? Like, you shouldn't be upset at this, like, sin or the sin that was committed against you or the sin that's committed against somebody else, or you shouldn't really demand justice and long for justice because God forgives everybody. Let's just be nice and... The problem with that is that it diminishes like the holiness of God. 
It diminishes the, the hope of the gospel and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It diminishes like, like the injustices that are committed against us. And like some of you in this room, I'm sure, have had horrible sins committed against you. Abigail's words to David are the same as you. Like God will one day come and straighten it out. In fact, we're not called to forgive. Like, the problem with that whole view is it disempowers us from the very thing we need to forgive. Paul talks about it in Romans 12. Like, I have it on the screen. Romans chapter 12, he says this. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Sounds like, hey, let's just be all nice and get along, right? Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Now listen. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let's just pause there for a second. The reason why we can release people from our need to bring judgment and revenge and wrath upon them isn't because, like, everything just doesn't matter. It's because it, like, matters in an infinite, eternal sense. And either, like, that person will bear God's judgment for all eternity when God comes and, and provides vengeance, or... It'll be born on the, on the person of his son as Jesus bears that for them. Either way, it will get dealt with and justice will be served. So we don't have to be the ones to do it. Like David, Abigail's like, you know what, David? God's going to establish you in your kingdom. God has good for you. God's doing this. God will avenge you. You can release my stupid husband and not incur guilt. So that's exactly what Paul's saying here. Do I have more? I think I have more. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. The only way we can do that is if we, if we trust that God is doing something bigger than just our, like, offense. If we, if we trust that the son of David is sitting on the throne and he's the king who's going to come and have perfect justice. The prophets speak about this one who's going to come who doesn't just judge by, the eyes by what his eyes see. He's not going to be duped. He's not going to be like glossed over. Like he will judge perfectly and righteously and every wrong that's been committed against you will be paid for. So we can let it go and we can forgive. And what that means, if, you're, if you've wronged somebody, if you're sitting here this morning and you've wronged somebody, like, you should fear. Because one day, like, God is going to come in judgment to judge the living and the dead. He's going to come in vengeance. And any wrong that you committed against somebody will be paid for. And your only hope of surviving that day is, is to let Jesus Christ bear the guilt for you. You know, in Romans chapter 3, um, we're told this. He, in, in Romans chapter 3, he's, he's talking about how, well, he's talking about the righteousness of God, how unless we have righteous, like God's righteousness, 
We're never going to be able to stand before him. And it says this, and I'm just kind of picking up in the middle of a section. He says, even the righteousness of God, now listen to this, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. Like God's righteousness, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he takes your guilt upon himself. He pays perfectly the penalty for your sin. And God's righteousness comes to you through faith for those who believe. And then it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not one of us who, who doesn't need God's righteousness that comes to us through faith. He goes on uh, later on in, in Romans 3. And he says, the whole point of all this, he says, for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier. What that means is that God is both the just judge, like he doesn't just sweep sin under the rug ever. And he's also the justifier where he declares ungodly sinners righteous. And the, way he, the only way he can do that is through having his son bear the penalty of our sin on the cross for us. And so if we're those people that believe all of that, we should be people who, for one, just praise God. And Yehuda and the rest of your team, you can come up. Who just praise God for like the forgiveness and the mercy that we've received that we completely don't deserve. And if, you're, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you still sit under the guilt of your sin and you're being convicted of that even this morning, know that you can be free from God's judgment. That in Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice on the cross, God was both just he paid the price for your sin, and he was the justifier so that you could be declared righteous. So place your faith in him. So you, why don't you close us? Don't close us. Father, I just thank you for that reality that um, you are our defense. You are our righteousness, that there's not a breath that we take that we don't need you um, in it. So, Father, I just pray that you would help us to live as people who, like, drink deeply of your grace, who extend that grace to others, who proclaim the good news of, of the forgiveness of sins and, and the reality of your coming kingdom so that many can join us in that day of just praising you and feasting in your house and, and celebrating the, the salvation that we've made, made part of. And Father, I just pray that you would give us that same like otherworldly mercy that you allow David to have, that you protect us from seeking our own revenge, that you, that you demonstrate your forgiveness as we forgive those around us um, to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.